Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Hebrews. We are wending towards the end. We've got uh, chapter 12. We maybe just started that last week. Into chapter 13, and that's it. And if memory serves, chapter 13 is relatively short. It is. So we will be hitting these two chapters, and then we'll be talking about what it is that we want to do next. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we remember that the practical point of the epistle of Hebrews is to keep people from apostatizing, Christian people from returning back to Judaism, back to the Old Covenant. And all of the rhetoric has been formulated around this. Now, why is this issue so acute? Because everyone sees like a storm building on the horizon coming persecution. So what the author of Hebrews does is shows that the nature of faith from the Old Testament patriarchs all the way to the present is holding firm to the promise of God, even without receiving that promise of God. You remember this refrain from chapter 11, these all died in faith, having not received the promise. So what is the implication of that for these first century hearers? It is to retain the faith, retain faith in the promise, even if they die, recognizing that that promise is to be fulfilled after their death, just as it is for all the saints. And then Christ is set forward as a template for this. This is chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these, all of these Old Testament patriarchs and matriarchs who died in faith, having not received what is promised. That is, think about that. They were faithful unto the end even not receiving what was promised. So, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right-hand throne of God. So, so Jesus here presented as the one who has finished the race, upon whom we set our sights as we run the race, looking to what he had to endure, namely the cross and the shame of the cross, in order to win that race. And so also we want to run as he ran, enduring all, despising the shame, running for that joy that is set before us, just as he ran for that joy that is set before him. 
Now, this despising the shame is an interesting way, and I've long thought that it's distorted somehow in English. And looking at this and comparing it with Kleinig's commentary, that impulse seems even stronger to me, and the, that thought seems to be right. So let's first look kind of at with our focus on Jesus. So we are all to look to Jesus as we run. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So here too, we have this sense of development. We've even seen a development in the person of Christ. You can see it nascent here or inherently here in the text that there is Christ as he's running the race and Christ after he's run the race seated at the throne of God. He doesn't get to sit at the throne of God until he's run the race. So you can see that there's, once again, in the, in the author of Hebrews Christology, there is a development in the humanity of Christ. And that parallels, a, or really informs, manifests itself in a development of our humanity. We, too, are running this race, and Jesus is the founder, but not just the founder of our faith, the perfecter or finisher, the one who brings it to completion and perfection, maturity. So he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. We also endure this development. Your faith will not be perfect until you have endured up and through death itself, having not received the promise. Then, as you die in faith, just as all the patriarchs and matriarchs of old, just as our Lord Jesus himself, then you will receive the fullness of joy, which is with Christ Jesus. You will receive the crown. You will receive um, what was, in fact, promised. And in that sense, your faith is perfected. So, this is a corporate promise to all of us as Christians, but it does take on this individualistic character because your death is not my death. Your death and my death are not the death of Abraham. We each have our individual course to run. Even as we're pursuing Jesus, we have our own things which we must endure, the own shape and form of our death, which is ultimately to be conformed into the shape and form of his death. We endure these things in faith uh, for the joy that is set before us, looking to Christ Jesus. Now, he endures the cross despising the shame. You can take this in two ways. The first way, I think, is how probably most people in America take it, and I think it's wrong. I've long been suspect of this. Despising the shame is is often understood to be like, well, wouldn't you despise the shame too? The cross is a terribly shameful thing. He had to endure this. It's kind of like in order for him to take out the trash, yeah, he had to get his hands dirty and smell the bad smells, but he did it, and he despised it while he was doing it. I've long suspected that that's not right, and I, again, I just feel all the more confirmed in this that Kleinig tends to see it the way I do. Maybe a better way to enter into this way, the second way of thinking and the proper way of thinking is with an, another D word, deriding. Deriding the shame. So that he embraces the shame. It's, how would you put this? Um, like uh, a little bit like a, um, well, we're in the NBA playoffs right now, a little bit like an athlete who's dribbling down and someone tries to steal and bumps into him and he does a spin move and goes around and somebody else juts in front of him and he kind of head fakes, does the 
and and that guy jumps, and then he he does the NBA non-traveling travel of 14 steps, and then eventually starts floating through the air, weaves and dodges someone else, gets fouled, somehow does a slam dunk, and and is finished and complete. All right, and at the end, he's not thinking like, I mean, neither during it nor the end is he like, these guys are bumping me and abusing me. No, he's like conquering them as he goes. He's, in, in that sense, like overcoming every obstacle. And if the obstacle of the, here in, in terms of the cross is the shame, he's besting the shame, overcoming the shame, embracing the shame so as to shame the shame, deride the shame, defeat and despise and denigrate the shame, so much greater is that joy which is to come. So Jesus, he, he presents his face, as the prophet says, to those who would spit upon him. He presents his face to those who would pluck out the beard. He's not like, oh, this shame, this is so terrible, I don't deserve this. No, he's like, spit away, pluck away, I am going right through this to do the ultimate cosmic slam dunk. Okay? <laughs> Yeah, I like to bring it on. There's, there's like this aggression here of despising the shame. And why this makes so much sense is because the other way of like, oh, poor me, I don't like the shame, but I guess I have to endure it, doesn't do a darn thing for the, the people to whom the, uh, <laughs> the author is writing. What is he trying to do? bolster them up against the persecution that is to come, the shame that is to come, the loss of their possessions, the imprisonment, the um, beatings, perhaps the capital punishment. He's trying to say to them, look at how the Lord ran, not only enduring it, but despising, deriding, shaming the shame with the same champion-type mentality of the overcomer, the conqueror, um, you should run your race. If you set your eyes on Jesus, you're going to see that that's how he ran, and that's going to inspire you to run in the same way. Yes? I'm reading a book right now that's written to the youth of of the world, called Wild at Heart. Okay. Addressing, I'm going to use the word, wimpy approach that we've gotten ourselves into in America, raising our boys. I see, yes. And and, uh, I highly recommend it. It's called Wild at Heart. Okay. John Eldridge. Ah, very good. Okay, thank you for that recommendation. And and makes the point that uh, there are many, many Christians that have um, said Jesus was just, you know, a wimp. Uh, Right. Absolutely not. Right. There's there's a place where the... um, there, where the, uh, where Jesus is talking with one of the disciples, and it has to do with a sword. We'll, we'll have to get a sword. Uh-huh. No, it's it's. Then the implication is, Jesus implies get two swords. Uh, right. I mean, you've got to read. It's straight from the word. Right. It blew right. me away. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. There's a there is a kind of um, masculinity in Jesus that's to be admired, and I. And I would even say here, at least for our understanding, there is a masculinity to it, but there, but not in such that it would exclude femininity, because we've already seen female champions um, brought up in the previous section. So there's just a sense of what I would think of more as virtue, 
um, that is veer man in the general sense, encompassing both sexes. There's something essential to being human. There's a dignity to being human, to be brave and to not succumb to this shame that the world heaps upon you. How so? Knowing that Christ himself endured it. And that if Christ himself endures it, he will uh, found, empower, sustain, and ultimately perfect our faith as we run the, the same race after him. So thank you for those comments. Yeah, despising the shame, and now he is seated at the right hand, thro- at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the whole point would be that we are following him to that uh, joy. Where's that at? Yes, um, for the joy that was set before him. um, To be at the right hand of the throne of God and to have paved a way for the salvation of mankind, to have, have won salvation for all. So here too, I mean, those of you who came to the service and listened to the... uh, the teaching of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke this morning, uh, early at 7 a.m., and you heard Jesus say, strive to enter through the narrow door. This is exactly the same theology. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. And while it is absolutely true that we are justified by grace through faith apart from works, and this is received by faith passively, it's a gift, it doesn't require anything in us, That doesn't mean that we can negate all these other parts of Scripture with that truth. These other parts of Scripture need to speak just as full-throatedly, namely that that the Christian life is one of striving and running, to borrow from Paul, wrestling and fighting, conquering and waging war, all of these things together. So there is a, uh, as as we go toward From this lens, from this vantage point, as we go toward salvation, there is very much much an activity on our part. Running the race, looking to Jesus, and then similarly enduring our cross, despising whatever shame may come, that we may be seated with him at the right hand of God. All right, so that's where we're at so far. And you can see then the rhetoric for these Christians who are likely to face persecution, how all of this functions together. And that poises us to go into verse 3 and following. But before we do, let's pause and see if you have any thoughts or questions. Everybody's okay? All right. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted by the way this is one of the this is one of the major motifs of um, salvation or atonement so you've got this you've got this motif of Christ as victor. And you can see some of those themes here where he's conquering the shame and that kind of thing. But more classically, Christ as vicar is conquering Satan or conquering death. We saw that earlier in Hebrews where um, by death he destroys the one who has the power of death. 
But then we also have a kind of another paradigm presented to us in the scriptures, and that is that Christ is laying down his life to make an atonement for sins, to shed his blood for atonement. Um, Sometimes, again, in this cultic language, this language of the temple, he is redeeming, because in in that way of thinking, you have to give the life of one thing in order to redeem the life of another. So he is redeeming us by laying down his life. But here we see yet another motif connected with our salvation. And that is that Jesus is the runner and the one who runs and the one who founds and perfects our faith as we are running. And so here it's impossible to see anything other than the path to salvation as being one of having him as our example. And that's why you can see that Christ as an example, even in the paradigm of salvation, is completely and fully biblical. We can't reject that. So the beauty of Lutheranism is we're not going to reject any of these three things, nor are we going to reject any others that are sort of out on on another outer ring um, that are also true and presented us to the scriptures. The beauty is like, what was Christ doing on the cross? Whatever the Bible says he was doing. And for that, we will confess and give thanks. So we can see that here um, in verses uh, 1 and 2, and then also then as we carry on into verse 3, that we are to consider him, Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that we won't grow weary or faint-hearted, thinking, oh, God has forsaken us, God has rejected us, our enemies are prevailing. Not so so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That, too, kind of tying in the language with the race or running motif. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So what he's basically saying here is um, Christ, in his resistance against sin did in fact shed his blood you have not yet been asked to do this even if you are asked will you not be sustained yes by the very one who endured it himself so this is the uh the rhetoric here in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood Um, that is you have not yet come to a kind of narrow martyrdom where you're dying for the faith. Verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now this is cited from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not regard lightly. Uh, Probably a better way to render this would be do not despise The discipline of the Lord. So regard lightly in English can mean any number of things. That's why I prefer despise, because that's the actual sense. Don't despise the discipline of your Lord. So when God brings a cross and suffering upon you, when he allows sinners to exercise hostility against you, don't despise this and thus despise the Lord. My son, do not despise or regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by him. 
And God will use persecution to reprove his Christians. Again, he's the author and perfecter of our faith, and he's going to use the cross to shape and perfect our faith, to reprove us. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises, more on that in a minute, and chastises every son whom he receives. So you have a fatherly motif here where the father is saying, in effect to us, do not regard discipline, do not lightly or regard the discipline, do not despise the discipline, nor be weary when reproved. He's doing this because he loves you. As a father loves his son and thus takes the time to discipline him. So it's love that disciplines because you want that person to be better. And so it's the father's love that disciplines us, wanting us to be better. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises uh, mastigu in Greek, which is the same word used um, for the scourging of Jesus. So that's interesting. It's interesting, like in John 19. So, my son, do not regard lightly, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and scourges every son whom he receives. Now see how this is no different than take up your cross and follow me. Uh, A cross is a torture device and you are to follow Christ, you will be tortured. But this is precisely your glory overcoming this agony and shame. But if you are also taking up your cross and following him to the cross, you will also be scourged because he is scourged. So he scourges not only his son, Jesus, but he scourges every son, whom he receives. Now, all of this strikes us as like very strange, and if we think in an earthly way, like very horrific. Um, what father scourges his son? Um, no good father. But that's all aside from the point. This is a deeper spiritual uh, truth and reality into which we are being called, one in which God says, if you want to be my eternal and everlasting son, You must go in the way of my eternal and everlasting Son. Through the shame, through the scourging, through the cross, through death, you know, we must suffer with him that we might be glorified with him, crucified with him that we might be raised with him, humbled with him that we might be exalted with him. It's a package deal. And that's the whole point of our Lord's teaching and so many of the teachings of the the scriptures, including this one that we ought not be surprised. Hey, I thought I, I became a Christian. I thought it was supposed to be my best life now. What gives? Uh, a little different, isn't it? It is your best life now, just not in a way that you or I would ever choose. And that's also precisely the point. We wouldn't choose it because why? We're sinners. We're self-interested and we're also dense. We're spiritual idiots. Because we don't even know what's good for us. The Father does. And so he disciplines those whom he receives, those whom he loves. All right, um, in verse 7 we continue the thought. It is for discipline that you have to endure. 
So here, what is, what is being said, um, it's not as if God is masochistic. It's not as if um, you're not, uh, in enduring, you're not progressing. See, this is the other thing we have. It's, it's just a problem. Like, well, God is masochistic. Well, if he's not masochistic, but I can't grow, my faith can't actually move toward perfection, then as I'm sitting here, I'm just receiving these blows, but the blows are for no end if I can't grow or mature. And that, unfortunately, is where so much of modern Christianity has landed, is you can't grow or mature, and so the blows are for nothing, and so I can't understand what I'm suffering or why I'm suffering it. But look at the author of Hebrews here. Look at God's word healing us of this nonsense. We, precisely because we do grow up as sons, the discipline, the scourging, the chastisement comes upon us so that we endure and grow up as sons of God into the image of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, look at the rhetoric of verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, remember that that great... uh, list of saints, that great cloud of witnesses, they all participated in discipline. You can go back and read for yourself the discipline they endured. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you are living your best life now, you have reason to fear. Whereas if you are suffering, you have reason to rejoice. And this is, this is at the heart of that truth that God only calls to suffering those whom he loves. And your particular crosses, the shape of your sufferings, are chosen by God for you before the foundation of the world in order to conform you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, who himself is the image of the invisible Father. So ultimately to become like Jesus, which is to become like God. And this is the high and holy calling of suffering. Pastor Rudy. Yes. If you want to point me to wait again. Uh, go right ahead. The two rascally grandsons I have. Yes. Yes. They have memorized a... a um, uh, absolutely riveting comment about good times make weak men weak men you know what yeah, I've, got yeah, it, yeah. I've got it written down in my catechism at home but I'm um, I'm gonna I have to show it to you because it fits this mm-hmm. perfectly I know the quote you're talking about yeah. yeah although I'd only be able to paraphrase it I think that that's exactly the point that there are even earthly analogies for this there's an earthly analogy in the sense that like a soft and easy world makes for soft and easy men and a hard and difficult world makes for strong and robust men I, another earthly example is just even earthly fathers discipline their sons if they love them. The worst kind of father you can have is not a father who's too hard on you, but a father who doesn't care enough to lift a finger. You can recover from a father that's too hard on you. I mean, I'm not talking about extreme abuse. Or obviously, there's exceptions. But um, you know, a father that's too hard on you, you can recover from, and later in life, you can even be grateful for that. 
Um, you remember the song, A Boy Named Sue? That's an earthly story of that very thing. Yeah. So um, th- this idea that even if your father's a complete jerk uh, you can l- to you, at least he cares enough to interact with you and discipline you in some way, shape, or form. Um, that, that's as messed up as it might be. That's loving compared to the uh, deadbeat dad who just doesn't even love you enough to be around. That's the worst. And so if you're not, if you're not e- experiencing any pain or suffering or cross or affliction, um, it's not that God is a deadbeat, it's that you're not yet a son. <laughs> Become a son of God, be baptized, come to church, start praying every day, and watch what will happen. <laughs> you will walk the way of the cross. Now, the, our Father is so good and so wise, he, will, he makes it very easy on us very frequently as we are neophytes or if we have apostatized like the, like the prodigal son who goes away and then we come back. He doesn't make us do a whole bunch of push-ups and start disciplining us and afflicting us. You know, he's very kind and gracious. He wraps his coat around the sun. I hardly think that he said to the sun as soon as the feast is over, like, okay, well, now that you're back, let's get you back to work. <laughs> I don't think that happened either. So our father knows what he's doing. He's gentle. He's merciful. He doesn't give us, this is the real sense of he doesn't give us more than we can bear. He's not going to crush us on, you know. If, if it is coming upon you, it's coming from his fatherly hand because he knows you can endure it and he will help you endure it and this is for your good. So you can take great comfort in that, right? All right, so we can take these earthly analogies and, and use them to one degree or another to understand the heavenly reality of what's going on. Um, you have to, it, you, this is, I mean, all have participated in this. You can't avoid it. If you avoid it, you're an illegitimate child and not a son. All right, verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Maybe, maybe years after the fact. <laughs> maybe when you're in your 20s or maybe when you have your own child. But ultimately, or sometimes even at the time. I mean, ultimately, you do respect them for what they're trying to do. How much more should we respect our Heavenly Father? And that's um, the sentiment in the next line. Shall we not much more be subject, submissive to, acceptive uh, of, and um, willing to receive whatever he has um, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits? So this is contrasting earthly fathers, you know, your dad Todd or Doug or Paul or whatever his name is. Um, contrast that and the smallness of that <laughs> with the capital F Father of Spirits, the one who is the Father of angels, archangels, the whole company of heaven and also human beings. Everything's encompassed here because... Uh, man is um, man is essentially uh, ruach spirit. God breathes upon the clay, the adama, and there is a living being. Um, so, in this sense, Kleinig takes um, father of spirits to be inclusive of human beings. So, look, if you respect your earthly father in all of his smallness because he disciplined you, shall we not much more be subject to? Um, and again, willing to receive the discipline of the Father of Spirits, and thus live. And here I think live is laden with um, eternal life. 
because there is no other way to eternal life. For they, namely our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. And isn't that remarkable? I sometimes marvel at that, I guess, as I get older, that you really spend a small amount of time in your parents' house. 18 years, maybe. You know, that's it. Um, There's this really small period of your life in which you are disciplined by your earthly father. Um, So, if they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, the father of spirits, disciplines us for our good, and it is indeed for this whole life, but this whole life is but an even shorter time, relatively speaking. And he does so, why? So that we may share his holiness. Ah. So to share in the sufferings he afflicts is to share in his holiness. Again, I see this entire section as Christological. The entire thing back in verse 2 forward is that we're looking to Jesus. The entire quotation of uh, Proverbs 3 is, in a sense, first and foremost about Jesus, or at least he is the son par excellence, and then we also are sons. And so um, to follow Jesus is um, to participate in his holiness. And that not in just an abstract way, but in a concrete way to endure suffering while keeping the faith. To endure suffering, trusting it's for our good. To endure suffering for the sake that, in the same way I discipline my son, like, not like, okay, here you are, you did something bad, I want you to return to who you are. No. It's not what I want for my son at all. Here you are, you did something bad, I want you to learn from this in such a way that you'll grow and not do that thing again. Isn't that the whole point of discipline? The whole point of discipline holistically isn't like, okay, you did a, you did a debt, now you've got to pay that debt. That's not the point of discipline. The point of discipline is, it, and that may be only a portion of it, but the point of discipline is, Whatever it is that must afflict you is so that you won't be that way again. You'll mature and grow so that when you face the same dilemma or the same temptation, you won't act that way. Does that make sense? So there's a growth inherent in good discipline, even on the earthly level, how much more than the heavenly level? I mean, how much more is the Father of Spirits and our Lord Jesus Christ want to not only author our faith, but bring it into perfection? And really, that's what's going on here. So he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, and then I'll I'll take a pause. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is where, again, so we're working, um, I think you can still work from the earthly analogy here that, hey, when you're going through discipline as a kid, you, nobody goes, oh, yay, this is great. I love being grounded. Grounded is awesome. No, but as you're disciplined, um, later, it's always painful rather than pleasant as you're enduring it, but later it yields, you know, you can later, you can look back on that and say, I'm glad that happened. 
It's something you can do, too, if you find yourself with a bunch of extra time or caring to meditate on these things. I don't know. It's a little dangerous, too, I suppose. But as you look back on your life, in some cases, you can see that the worst things that happened to you um, were the best things that happened to you. Obviously, there are exceptions to that. I'm just saying in general and with some things. I mean, I can think, for example, very personally, like, I, um, in my senior year, right before my senior year of high school, I suffered a terrible injury. And that injury really steered the course of my life in an entirely different way. Up until that point, I wanted to pursue football and an entire, just really an entirely different path. But that injury really set me back enough that I was like, I don't think I want to do football. I don't know what I want to do, but I, that, that pursuit of athletics is not going to be the end-all, be-all to me. I'm changing course. And I think in many respects, just as I look back in my life, it's what led me along the path ultimately to seminary. And I can think of other heartbreaking things that occurred at various times in my life that guided me in a way where I go, after it's all said and done, I just go, I, I guess I'm thankful because I can see the hand of the Lord and what he worked through those things. Now, maybe there's other instances where that's not the case. We can't reconcile it that way, or we have to think about it in a different way. That's fine. I'm not saying everything fits into this box. But I think we can, even in our earthly lives, look back on ways in which God has disciplined us, and it's been miserable at the time, but after the fact, you're grateful for it. How much more at the end of this life when we're seated at the right hand of the Father with the Son in the fullness of joy, will we, work back, will we look back and say, I, I wouldn't be who I am right now unless you loved me as a father and unless you disciplined me and chastised me and brought me into conformity with your Son. It's really one of the remarkable things. And I think, too, this is what, um, I mean, this is in a sense like, Okay, why does God keep the world going on? Or why does, um, why does God keep me in this world? And there's always the sense, and it's a correct answer. It's a profoundly correct answer. There's always the sense of like, well, there are more people to be saved. But there's also this. There's more of you to be perfected. There's more of you to, be, to, to grow. And that's, that's also part of his fatherly goodness. If you don't stress a muscle, it doesn't. It does not increase in. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that a fun thing? It's from one of your sermons here. Oh, I preached that. Oh, yeah. great. Or maybe it was a different. I don't. That's know. one of the things I got right. Then maybe. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it, it, that's kind of the paradoxical thing. In order to grow bigger muscles, you have to break them down. <laughs> you have to destroy in order to rebuild. Yeah. There's a, there's a same kind of thing here, um, and this this is kind of like part and parcel of what we talked about last class too. It's just. It's just taking it in a slightly different way. That the Christian life is one of getting knocked down and getting back up again, and just getting knocked down and getting back up again. But what you don't really even maybe perceive in yourself, though I don't think there's anything self-righteous in the least in perceiving it in yourself, is that eventually you don't get knocked down by the things you got knocked down by before. That little by little, in humility, and not giving any credit to yourself but to God alone, you're like, yeah, that would have, that would have destroyed me five or ten years ago, or it did destroy me five or ten years ago, I want nothing to do with it now. I'm done with it. And so there is a sense in which, even though we're getting knocked down all the time and, and picked back up again by the grace of God, 
um, we are slowly but surely growing stronger, being broken down like those muscles and being rebuilt into stronger, yeah, stronger muscles. All right, any thoughts you have on this? Any, um, anything strike you as odd? Everything all right? I'm just kind of dense. So is how God disciplines us is sending us sufferings? Is that? that is what's in view here. Now, there are many other ways that he fathers us. I would never say that his overall, because he gives good things too. Um, I, I, <laughs> I'm trying to make a case for why everybody should go to all of Thursday from, <laughs> from 7 a.m. up to the present. Because in our reading in the first article, I was blown away. I must be getting old or something. Because every time I read something that I've read a million times before, it's striking me as brand new. And I think that happens to you when you get old. But this is... Um, it was striking me as like I'd never heard it before. And the first article is all of the good things that God gives and sustains just purely out of, out of his fatherly goodness and without any desire for anything back. But then it's like if this, and the world just refuses to even see it. All the bread that the world eats today is from the hand of God and the world can't even recognize that. Every last enjoyment we have period, is from the hand of God. And the world is so snobby, so wicked, so evil as to take it all in, suck it all in, and not even give a single thank you, but to hate and despise him, and use his gifts to hate and despise him. And how horrific this is, and how that inspires within us just this sense of immediate filial love. <laughs> That's not fair. It's not right. I think in microcosm, some of us as parents, you deal with this when you have ungrateful children. You know, They have no idea what you've sacrificed. And um, they, well, you didn't do this one thing. Yeah, because I did the 1,500 other things that were more necessary. <laughs> so the Lord, uh, the Father calls us into his own pain there to share his own pain and perspective. But yeah, that that's how the world is. So when we, when we talk about God's fatherly provision, we have to talk about every good thing that he gives, every providential thing, every blessing, the center of which is his Son and Holy Spirit. Redemption in Christ Jesus, the full forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Spirit, the renewal of the man, the new crea- creation that he's made in us. Like These are all who God is. It's what the creed teaches us. And then, yes, as part of that, he, is conf- he loves us so much that he doesn't just want us to be happy little creatures. He wants us to be conformed into the image of his son and to become not just merely, I mean, this is how Paul puts it, not um, having uh, earthly bodies only, but spiritual bodies and becoming um, not made after the image of the man of earth, but made in the image after the man of spirit. So God loves us so much, he's conforming us into the image of his own son, which is an unspeakable mystery. I mean, I'll go back to the first chapter of Hebrews and say, um, to what angel has he given this honor to be conformed into the image of the second person of the everlasting Holy Trinity? But to us, he's given this glory. And that comes only um, only through the Lord giving and the Lord taking away. Um, Like a potter with the clay, him shaping us into the image of Christ for everlasting salvation. 
you know, it's going to be, and, and I kind of liken it to this too. It's uh, by, it's just an analogy. So don't like hold me to some technical dogmatic point here, but in a sense, what he's doing is like creating fit vessels um, for you know, to, for us to receive the wine and joy of everlasting life. And it's like, yeah, if you were, you know, if I died when I was ten, maybe I'd be a vessel like this, and I and he would pour in his grace and mercy and joy, and I would be utterly full. But over the course of life, he pulls you out to stretch to know more of him, more of his ways, to know his suffering, to know greater depths of the faith, greater profundity. And now you die and you're in heaven like this. And the chalice looks very different. It gets filled up. And is it full? Yeah. So in both cases, the chalice is full. The joy is full and complete. And yet, while there is a complete, an equality of completion or fullness, there's a difference in terms of volume or content. And that's very much what God is doing for us in this life, is he is increasing that ability for us to be vessels of his everlasting grace. Ephesians puts this so beautifully, that he is just he has called us to eternal life so that he can have beings into which he can continually and everlastingly pour his grace and gifts. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> isn't it something? I mean, I, I sometimes like, you know, human beings are like, oh, I wish I was a bird so I could fly around. And I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> you want to be a seagull? Fly around? Smell the ocean breeze? That's so petty. That's so ridiculous. We, we've lost our minds. To be a human being is to be a vessel of God, into which God is going to pour his everlasting grace and mercy, the wine of salvation, joy of of his very being, um, ever more and more into all eternity. And all he's doing right now is shaping and forming us so that we can receive more and more of that as we go into heaven. Whenever you're ready, Pastor, not, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry, I've been uh, verbose today. Oh, good. Apologies. <laughs> no problem. Uh, how would you equate this, or would you... To uh, John's phrase in Revelation, uh, when he referred to Christ as Lord of Lord, King of Kings. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. So, yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. You, you're kind of setting the ball on the tee there for me. <laughs> you probably know my answer. Um, so in Revelation, uh, the titles for Jesus is uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I like to make the point that what's in view there is not the earthly kings that set themselves against God, Psalm 1, uh, but we who have been given this honor and glory by God to reign with Christ, we are those kings and those lords over whom he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So an incredible and unspeakable glory. This is What we're doing is I'm just trying to glimpse us into, and it's the best we can do, why it is that Paul can say that these present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to that glory which is to be revealed. Now, that's all I'm really trying to do with my theology here is articulate what Paul has already said so beautifully in Romans. And, to a degree, what's already been said, of course, here in Hebrews 12. All right, any other thoughts or comments, or should we motor along? Off we go. Therefore, verse 12, 
Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive, pursue is another word. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And here again we have this conundrum, well, I thought I was already holy. Yeah, well, that's true in a sense, I mean, but there's also this other sense in Scripture where it says strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. Grammatically, you're striving for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What is that holiness? The holiness of Faith enduring. I mean, look back, if you want to know what the author of Hebrews thinks his holiness is, look at the end of chapter 10. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So enduring the race, shame, and suffering set before us is holiness, and we have to strive to do this. So you can see he sees his congregation as like Weak, wounded. This imagery um, is certainly present in Isaiah. Drooping hands and strengthening weak knees and this kind of thing. But like he's seeing us in a non-athletic place and we have a race ahead of us. And that race is going to be to endure persecution and suffering in this life. So lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. What is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. So, again, the picture here is um, getting into mental and physical shape to run this race, striving for peace with everyone, insofar as we can have it, but recognizing that they're going to bring, the unbelievers will bring violence upon us, and striving for the holiness without which, one, uh, without which no one will see the Lord. So that's the eschatological seeing of him at the end of the race. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no quote-unquote root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Alright, so what's the pivot here? Um, I think in, in essence it's run the race, be like Christ, be like those who came before you. We've listed out the good guys of the Bible don't be like the bad guys, and don't become the antithesis of these things. Obtaining to, uh, that's a good one, failing to obtain the grace of God, uh, not allowing a root of bitterness to spring up and cause trouble. And that means, you know, <laughs> I think of this as like gardening the soul, making sure there's not a root of bitterness there that's going to spring up and cause trouble. And then, of course, warning against sexual immorality, and then warning against um, like having the appearance or form of godliness, but denying its power. Someone like Esau, 
uh, Esau sells his birthright for a meal, what would that be equivalent to? Giving up on your baptism in order to have this momentary lack of uh, persecution. So Esau's birthright, he was born into this inheritance. He was willing to trade it off for momentary pleasure. You have become an inheritor of God through baptism. Don't trade that in for this momentary pleasure of avoiding the persecution to come. That's the rhetoric. And then contrasted here is the sort of false faith, false repentance of Esau, at least in this instance. I'm not against the idea that Esau later converted. It's just not in view here. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, like seeing that he apostatized from his birthright, he wanted it back, but he was rejected. Here, interestingly, the author of Hebrews says, because he found no chance to repent, that is, because he wasn't truly repentant, but rather sought it with tears. These aren't repentant tears that Esau cried. They're self-serving tears, the same tears that flow or the same tears that would have flown from his heart if he was denied this bowl of porridge. He longs for earthly pleasures, not true heavenly pleasures. He's not repentant. Um, but self-serving in the moment. And so Esau here set up as uh, that which we do not want to be. So far, so good? All right. Verse 18. This is great fun. Because we have, uh, I think this is the two mountains here. And we're going to contrast the two. um, Remember, to apostatize, to give up your birthright, to take the bowl of soup, um, is, uh, is to return to the Old Covenant in context, is to just go back to Judaism and be safe and protected. So you can see why immediately he makes this move then to contrast uh, Mount Sinai versus Mount Calvary, these two mountains, these two covenants. Okay, for you have come, you New Testament Christians, you have not come to what may be touched. Um, if you're in the Old Testament, they did come to what may be touched. Um, physical Mount Sinai. Okay. So you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. You might remember all of this is describing Sinai, what took place there at that mountain which could be touched. It's physically there. Of course, God said, don't touch it or you'll die. (laughs) All right, so you have not come to this, to this first covenant. Then he continues with this rhetoric in verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. They, the Old Testament people gathered around Sinai, could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses, to whom God spoke, far and away more holy than any of the others, he was terrified. So you have not come to this, now that we pivot on verse 22, 
but you have come to Mount Zion. So not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God. Now, notice the tense, you have come, not you will come. This is not, strictly speaking, a a future vision. This is a present tense reality. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now you can see why even the ancient liturgies and our liturgy echo this reality that as we come into the divine service, we are with angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. Verse 23, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven... And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Which, of course, in context is what? The blood of Jesus. (laughs) If you look at verse 24, it's the sprinkled blood that is speaking. The sprinkled blood of Jesus. And then verse 25, seamlessly, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And that's what it is to turn away from the new covenant, which is to turn away from the blood of Jesus in the chalice. How then could you be saved if you turn away from that? And if you knowingly, wittingly turn away from that, how could you ever come back to that? And now we see why the author of Hebrews writes the way he does back in chapter 6 and chapter 8. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. If they violated uh, the principles of Sinai, if they violated the covenant, this lesser covenant, uh, and we're not spared, how much less will we be spared if we violate the greater covenant? Again, all of the rhetoric is bent on you're insane to apostatize. And you're cutting yourself off from salvation. Um, I intend next week to thoroughly go through these two mountains with you. Well, particularly Mount Zion. And then to uh, also identify with you some of the kind of maybe more difficult phrases. What is the assembly of the firstborn? Um, Who are the spirits of the righteous made perfect? and other kinds of details that are very intriguing from that section. Um, But as long as we grasp the rhetoric for today, that's probably sufficient as our time draws to a close. Let's um, re-go through that next week and then uh, progress. I'm going to do my best next week to finish this out. So we will uh, try to progress through chapter 13 and uh, be done with the book of Hebrews, God willing. The Lord be with you.